It's good to be with you. We will be continuing in our teaching series in Job, which we just started just a couple weeks ago, called Sovereign Suffering. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at uh, the beginning of the prologue in chapter 1, in verses 1 through 5. Uh, we learned about Job's godly character and his incredible wealth uh, as we focused on his place, his piety, his posterity, his prosperity, and his regular pattern of making sacrifices for his children and, and praying for his children. He was just a, the, the priest of his home. What an excellent Christian this man was. In the next section, the narrative shifts our attention away from Job's sort of greatness on earth, and it shifts our attention away from that to heaven where we are given a rare insight into the unseen world, into what happens above us in God's realm, his, his abode, his place of, of where he reigns from, where he is consistently and constantly glorified. So we're given a glimpse into that. Please take your Bibles and turn over to Job chapter 1. Our focus today will be on verses 6 through 12. I have entitled this message, The Test, The Test. And I think uh, some of our Bibles, they have these little section titles. And I think in the ESV it says like something like The Testing of Job or something. But I can tell you right now, Job is really not the one who's put to the test in this text or in this book. It's God who's being put to the test by Satan. And we'll, we'll learn a little bit about that as, as we move through this part of the narrative. Again, Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. This is the test. I'd like to, to go ahead and read the text aloud, and then we'll pray and then get to work. Verse 6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Have you considered this guy, he says. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. And Satan says to God, But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. What an incredible text. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you open our hearts and minds to the truth, that you, through your word, magnify your sovereignty, that we see it so clearly here, and that we not only see it, your sovereignty, but that we are compelled and moved by the Spirit to submit to your sovereignty just as Satan had to do. And so, Father, we just uh, commit our time to you and we pray for your blessing and your understanding and your leading now. Be glorified in everything that is said this morning here in this word, in this time of teaching. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's pick up where we left off last week. That would be verse 6. Verse 6. You ready? All right, let's do it. You ready to take some notes for you note takers? Or Tom, who just takes the most incredible mental notes. He's just like a computer. He hears it and stores it. Let's do it. Verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Is this not one of the most perplexing, interesting, crazy verses that you've got the sons of God coming before the throne of God, and then Satan is with them. That's just incredible to, to have anything like this in front of us. Now, we need to carefully analyze the words and phrases. Let's break down this verse and all the other verses. We want to begin with the, the quick, short phrase, there was a day. There was a day. What does this imply? It implies that this was a day like any other day. 
Now, of course, there are no days and timelines and calendars and clocks in heaven. God does not reside in time. But on our end, it was a normal day. It would appear to be a normal day when this particular thing happened in heaven. And that's what, that's what we're being told. There was just a day, like any normal day. And yet on this particular day, something happened in heaven that would literally change Job's life forever. It's interesting to think that everything that, that befell and came upon Job was set and agreed upon before it ever came to him. Before it ever made its way to earth, all his troubles and tribulations, before any of that made its way to earth, it was agreed upon in heaven. And Job is just living his life at this point. He has no concept of any of this, doesn't believe something's going to happen, doesn't know something's going to happen. It's incredible to think that decisions are being made at the throne of God that we are not currently privy to. And if those decisions that are being made at the throne of God do have implications for us, we will only discover them as they begin to happen down here. And in many cases, we don't necessarily see the reality of it until later on, until it's after, after it's already happened. And I think that was probably the case for Job. The whole time these things are happening to him, he's, he's wondering why. He didn't know why, but at this point he doesn't even know that they're coming. Basically, what this little phrase, there was a day, shows us is that it shows us that the unseen world is active on a day-to-day -day basis even though we cannot see it, even though we cannot hear what's being said there, even though we can't see the meetings and the conversations and things that are happening in the unseen world. It tells us that on a day-to-day -day basis, stuff is going on. Stuff is happening. Stuff is happening in heaven. There are meetings, there is worship, there are things playing out that we just cannot see. And I suppose some people out there claim to have the gifts to be able to tap into that, but that's just demonic. So there was a day like any other day. And upon this day, not yet knowing, Job's life would be forever changed. Next phrase, the sons of God. What does this mean? Is that us, humans? No, we're image bearers. Sons of God speaks of beings whose existence is derived from God, right? Sons of God, so God obviously created them. But it also speaks to their rank, which is superhuman, beyond human beings. It is often translated angels in Scripture has the same meaning as the Greek word for angels, which is angelos. Sons of God means angels. We see this title back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, where it says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. When the sons of God, these angels, married and mingled with the daughters of man, human women, the Nephilim, were born or created. The Nephilim appear to, have had, to be these kind of half-angel, half-human beings that, that were on earth way back. Now, early Christian writers such as Justin Martyr and Eusebius, Clement of Alexandria and Origen, they believed that the sons of God were fallen angels, not just regular angels, but fallen angels. And we typically think of fallen angels as demons, the one-third of the angels that went with Satan when he was given the boot out of heaven. He's given a, a removed from his post and his position up there as the, the kind of worship leader. So they say, well, sons of God is specifically referring to fallen angels, those who were cast down to earth with Lucifer or Satan. Now, this may be true in Genesis 6, but I believe the meaning is broader here in Job chapter 1. Sons of God refers to angels in general, not just fallen angels here. I think that's the right way to interpret it. And, and here's something that's going to probably twist you up and, and maybe shake you a little bit. This group of angels, the sons of God that we're looking at here in the text, they appear to serve on a heavenly council. There is a heavenly council that exists in heaven whom God leads and oversees and interacts with. Psalm 89, verses 6 and 7, it says, For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? 
Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? So basically what this, the psalmist is saying is he has a counsel, but he's greater than anyone on it or in it. And this council is, is comprised of holy ones. And I would suggest that it's also comprised of unholy ones. Jeremiah 23, 18 says, For who among them has stood in the council of the Lord to see and hear His word? Or who has paid attention to His word and who has listened? So the angels, if there is this council, if it does in fact exist, and I think Scripture shows that it does... On this heavenly council, there are angels who are good and angels who are not good. And maybe that's what trips you up. You start thinking about it. Well, how can God interact with angels that are not good? How could they possibly belong to some kind of heavenly council that He instructs, guides, and leads? How is that possible? Well, if we believe God is sovereign and literally over all things then it is entirely possible that there could be a council with both good and bad on it. Does, not, does God not interact within a good and bad world? Did Jesus not interact with bad people? The only people He interacted with were bad people. Did Jesus not interact and deal with demons? He cast out demons all the time. One time He cast out a whole legion of them into a herd of pigs. It ran off a, a cliff into the ocean. Listen to a, a vision. Uh, it's a vision and it's a prophecy that Micaiah, I think it's Micaiah, received concerning King Ahab, who was an evil king. Listen to this. This is just incredible. 1 Kings 22, 20 through 23, it says this. This is the vision. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne and all the host of heaven standing beside Him on His right, on his right hand and on His left. And the Lord said this, listen to this, He's speaking to these angels, all the hosts of heaven, who to His counsel, He says, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? Who's going to do that? Who's going to go down there and jack him up? Who's going to lead him to do something and to go to a place where he can be defeated? And listen to this, listen to what one of the angels says. It says, And one said one thing and another said another. So these are the angels conferring and interacting, trying to figure out, what it is that God is after or what He wants. And listen to this. Then a spirit, that's an angel, came forward and stood before the Lord saying, Hey, I will go down and entice him. I will go down and tempt him. I will go down and lead him astray. And the Lord said to him, to this angel that volunteered to do this, and God says, by what means will you do this? How will you do it? And the angel said, I will go out and I will be, not I will give, I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. This angel is telling God, I will go down and possess his prophets as a demon and cause them to lie to him. Who's ever read that text before? And what did, how did God respond? Away from me, demon. He said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go and do so. God has a council, and God has good angels on his council, and he has bad angels on it. And the bad angels go and do these sorts of things to accomplish his will somehow, how his will comes through that. And the good angels as well do his bidding and will. On this particular day here that we're looking at, right? And on that day, the angels who serve on God's heavenly council, both good and bad, they had assembled for a purpose. They had assembled for a purpose. It says, what's this purpose? They came to present themselves before the Lord. I love that statement. I love that expression. You got good and bad angels on this council. You got good and bad in the world. But guess what? It's all underneath the sovereign feet of God. This expression means to attend a meeting to which one is summoned or to come before a superior ready to do his will, 
What are you saying, Phil, that the demons do God's will? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. God actually works through demonic forces to achieve His will. He works through all things. The same expression to present themselves is used with apocalyptic imagery in Zechariah when four chariots go out to all the world. It says, after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. Zechariah 6, 5. It's like they came together in a meeting and God sent them out to do His bidding. Good and bad. The idea here is first they present themselves for duty and then they go out and do what they have been told to do. Think of it like this. God summons His angelic servants, both good and bad, like our president might call his senior staff to an early meeting in the Oval Office before sending them out for action. God does this. And the next phrase says, and Satan also came among them. The Hebrew word for Satan is pronounced sa-ton, sa-ton, and it means adversary, it means accuser, it means opponent. It's used in a number of ways throughout Scripture, not always referring to this being. Uh, the noun is used in other contexts in the Old Testament. When God stopped Balaam in his tracks, that was a prophet who was going to prophesy against Israel, when God stopped that prophet in his tracks, he did so as Balaam's Satan adversary. Numbers 22, 22, not calling God Satan. I'm saying the word is used universally as adversary in the Old Testament. When the commanders of, or when the commanders told the Philistine king they didn't want David fighting with them against Israel, they said, he shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an satan, a satan, an adversary to us. 1 Samuel 29, 4. In other words, these Philistine commanders were worried that David would turn on them when they were fighting against the people of God. Now, you want to figure out why David was attempting to do that at all against his own people, well, just go back and read the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. Here in verse 6, Satan refers to Satan himself, Lucifer, the devil. He's the highest archangel who rebelled against God. He was removed from his high position in heaven, he was cast down to the earth. The fact that Satan was among the other angels as they came before the Lord seems to indicate that he too was a member or is a member of this heavenly council. The inclusion of bad angels, lying spirits, Satan, on God's heavenly council may seem absurd to us, and, and why is that? I'll tell you why it seems absurd that God would actually interact with a council that has these beings on it or that He would give them instruction or use them. It seems absurd to us because we have over time adopted a dualistic mindset or mentality. We see God over here, we see Satan over here, and we see them dueling over control of the world. But the Bible does not pr promote dualism. It does not teach dualism. It portrays for us a world that lies under the absolute supremacy and sovereignty of God our Creator, who has no rivals, who is unique, such that there is no God like Him, and yet God does not govern the world as the sole supernatural power. He governs the world by the means of and through the agency of a multiplicity of supernatural powers, some of whom are evil. How else did Satan become the prince of the power of the air? Ephesians 2.2. Are we to believe that he self-appointed himself? He didn't appoint himself to that position. He can't do that. He was put in that position. How, uh, how did Satan become, according to John chapter 12, verse 31, the ruler of this world? Did he make himself the ruler of this world? Somehow God took a day off? Was that Modesto Reservoir putting his feet in the water, relaxing, water skiing, and then Satan said, I'm going to take a high position. He didn't take the high position on his own. He was put in it. He was put in it. He didn't put himself in any of these positions. 
The only position he put himself in was in opposition to God, whom God punished him for, but also uses him as he is in that fallen state. A lot of people have the idea that, that the way that God's economy works is a lot like Star Wars. You got the Empire, you got the Federation. No, it's not the way it works. You got God and everything else below Him and under Him. This is not an, uh, an, an even match. You know, I often make fun of that idiotic poster that I see with Jesus arm wrestling the devil. He destroyed the devil at Calvary. He never had to sit at a table like the movie Over the Top with Sylvester Stallone and arm wrestle the devil. He crushed the devil so easily it wasn't even funny. I like to think of, uh, think of it like this. The inclusion of lying spirits and Satan on God's heavenly counsel has been described as being analogous to the expression in British governance. There's the expression, Her Majesty's loyal opposition. The opposition opposes the government, but do so in ultimate and unquestioned subservience to the crown. In a similar way, Satan and his fallen angels do what they can to oppose God's government, but they do so in ultimate and unquestioned subservience to His sovereignty. That's a great way to think of it. And believe me, God, God not only works through these evil supernatural beings, but He really has to in many ways. I'm not trying to bind up God by some kind of thing here. I'm just saying that the use of Satan produced our redemption. The, the demon possession of Satan in Judas Iscariot, God worked through to get Jesus to the cross. God works through evil to accomplish His purposes. He works through evil people. He works through evil supernatural angels to accomplish His purposes, even though they're unaware of it. But some will object and say that God cannot allow Satan to be in His presence because He cannot look at evil or have fellowship with evil. Habakkuk 1.13 makes that clear. They make this argument, but here in Job 1, we see Satan in the presence of God. So if God can't look on evil, why is Satan there? God can't look on evil, why did Jesus come to an evil world filled with evil people that need to be redeemed? But you need to understand something. You don't want to confuse fellowship with government. God can have no fellowship with evil because He is pure light, and in Him there is no darkness, 1 John 1, 5 and 6. But He can use evil in His government of the world, and He does. We see this in our text, and we see it throughout the entire Bible. There is no fellowship between God and Satan, just as there is no friendship between God and evil. God is the CEO. Satan is a mere creature who has to report to God along with his cronies and the other angels. That is the right way to look at it. That defeats the dualism. There is no dualism. God is God. Satan is not God. Not even close to him. He's just a subservient servant who rebels against God and yet in God's infinite wisdom is accomplishing his purposes even through Satan's rebellion. This, this book, do we, do we understand what we're dealing with here in this book? This book is probably the single greatest resource in Holy Scripture in support of the sovereignty of God. It is teaching us right now that even Satan and his demons are subservient and under the submission of God, that they must report to him. And when they do and make their suggestions, God either acts upon those suggestions because he knows he'll accomplish his will, or he refutes those suggestions and does not, and then they cannot proceed. This, this is, Job is a big God book. We have a, 
a big God, and yet preachers throughout our nation at this very moment are making God very small with their inept interpretations of Scripture. Our God is big. He's unfathomable. It's all under Him. We need to grasp that the evil agencies, the devil and his angels, while being supernatural and superhuman, are subdivine and subservient to God. I think that most of us have heard Martin Luther's excellent statement, the devil is God's devil. The devil doesn't act apart from God's sovereignty. He doesn't act apart from God's will. Everything he does is underneath the banner of God's supreme sovereignty. That's, something, that's, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow because then you start thinking about all the catastrophe and these things that have happened. Rachel and I were talking about this. Well, I think the Bible teaches it clearly, but that's, that's tough for us to understand. You start thinking of the Holocaust and these other things. Yeah, absolutely it's tough. But, you know, the Holocaust of the Jews in the, during World War II was not the only Holocaust that's hit the Jewish people. God has hit them with one Holocaust after another because of their disobedience. God works. If, if we're going to say to each other, hey, God works all things for the good of those who love and are called according to His purpose, if we're going to say God is sovereign, then we have to be willing to say that God is even sovereign over all the evil that happens. It never comes through His hand, but He's sovereign over it. None of it comes as a surprise to Him. And some of the greatest acts of evil, in fact, the greatest act of evil ever to be, ever be perpetrated on, on this planet was the slaughter and murder of an innocent, Jesus Christ. That is the greatest travesty to ever happen in human history. And God saw to it that it happened. God planned it in eternity past for it to happen. You see how God can work through evil? The sovereignty of God incorporates Him using evil and working through its outcomes to accomplish His purposes. And he never has to commit it with his own hand. He is perfect and he is holy. None of that ever changes, but he still works through it. All of the, uh, if we would call what happened to Job evil, all that evil that befell Job didn't happen without God saying, go ahead. The devil is God's devil. Never forget that. Never forget that. I don't know about you, but that brings me comfort knowing that my Father in heaven is greater than the devil and that He's greater than all evil, that He has sovereign control and power over all of it. It also tells me that if evil befalls me, I know that it has come through the loving hands of my Father. Somehow, He has some kind of work to do through it. In this case, in this scenario, he's going to work through the evil that Satan perpetrates against Job to vindicate his word and to bless Job in a way that Job had not been blessed afterward. So he works through it. He uses it. Now let's move to seven. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. How do you walk up and down on the earth? He must be like a death-defying, you know, trapeze uh, artist or whatever you call them. After this group of angels came into God's holy presence and stood before Him, God asks Satan a question. In fact, Satan is the only angel God speaks to here. There's a bunch of angels here, good and bad. Satan's the only one he talks to. He tells them, where have you come from? The omniscient, all-knowing God knew exactly where Satan had been. It knows exactly what he had been doing. So it's not God trying to figure... You know, God doesn't, it's not that God doesn't know something here. Well, where have you been? Well, God knew where he'd been and know, knows what he was doing. Remember, Satan has to come and get permission to do the things that he does. That's what we see in Job 1. God knows where he went. In a, in a strange way, he'd been out doing God's bidding the evil that he was per perpetuating on earth prior to this moment, God somehow is working behind the scenes to bring about good. He knew where he was. He knew what he was doing. 
this question was intended to elicit a confession from this fallen angel. It wasn't so God could get information. And Satan's answer is, is vague and evasive. He says, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it, that's like a grunting teenager responding to his parents. Where have you been, Sam? Well, I've just been around. Listen, well, you always ask me that. Been doing stuff. You know, whenever they say that, you know they haven't been doing the right thing. Right? Well, you know, someone will say, no, none of your business. You know, it's been out doing stuff, you know, hanging out, doing, doing bad. I've just been hanging out. He sounds like a grunting teenager here. But God knew where he was, what he'd been doing. He knew precisely. God's Word, in fact, God has described to us or told us, He teaches us in the Word, the actual activities of Satan. In other words, He has revealed in His Word to us what Satan actually does. What does he do? He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 He blinds the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. He comes and snatches away the word that has been sown in the hearts of those who hear it but fail to understand it. Matthew 13, 19. He deceives the world. Revelation 12, 9. He tries to hinder God's work. And I say tries to hinder because he doesn't actually hinder it. He tries to hinder God's work. 1 Thessalonians 2, 18. He sows weeds among the wheat. Matthew 13, 38 to 39. What does that mean? He sows false converts among the true people of God. You come to discover someone in the church whom you thought was a true believer and they begin to reveal that they're not a true believer through their behavior or the wacky things that they're saying. Just know that that is a plant from Satan. What else does he do? He attacks God's Word, right? Genesis 3.1. He tempts God's people, 1 Corinthians 7.5. He persecutes the church. Revelation 2.10, he falsely accuses the brethren, right? Revelation 12.10, he does a whole list of things, a whole lot of uh, procedures that he engages in. And, and, and I would say they're evil and they're wicked and they're horrific, but guess what? God works through every one of them to accomplish his purposes, The next line reveals another activity of Satan. Uh, we can move to verse 8. And here's God speaking to Satan again. Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? This is what he says to Satan. Why would he say this to Satan? Because Satan at that time was unable to find anyone to really annihilate and destroy on earth because there weren't any really godly people on earth. He already had the whole world uh, sort of wrapped up in evil. I think this probably happened right after Babel, you know, the tower coming down and all that. The world was a, a wicked place at that time, before the patriarchs. Or it may have happened at the time of the beginning of Abraham, but in any case, Satan's roaming to and fro looking for someone to devour, as Scripture says, and you just really can't find anyone because he's already devoured everyone. And God says, well, have you thought about this guy? <laughs> kind of hoping that God never suggests me to Satan, right? You ever considered Phil? Uh-uh. Huh? No. no. Phyllis. It's Phyllis. My name is Phyllis. You thought about this guy? Now, the question concerning Job here implies that one of Satan's activities as God's submissive opposition is to search men and women to see if there is anyone who is genuinely godly and pious. What, what has Satan been doing? He's been searching the earth, roaming to and fro, looking for someone to devour. But at the same time that he's doing that, he's looking for genuinely pious people, people who truly are devoted to God so he can tangle with them. This is one of his tasks. 
And like I said, it would appear during his out, last outing, it, and last search, he was just unable to find any worthwhile subject. So God tells him, well, here's one. Why don't you mess around with Job? You thought about him? I love that phrase, my servant. It conveys Job's honor and dignity. He is God's covenant partner. It's used 40 times of Moses, Joshua chapter 1, verse 2, and a whole lot of other verses. It's used as a general title for the prophets, 1 Kings 14, 18. And it's used of the patriarchs, Abraham, Genesis 26, 24, um, Isaac, Genesis uh, 24, verse 14, and Jacob, Exodus 32, 13. And yet before Satan can answer God's question, God makes three towering statements about Job. He says, there is none like him on the earth. Ain't nobody like this guy. You thought about this guy, there's nobody like him. I, I know you've, it's been a hard time for you to find godly, righteous, pious people on earth, but let me tell you something. You ain't never seen a guy like this. That's God with a southern accent. Number two, he is blameless. He is a blameless and upright man. We've already talked about what blameless means. It means nobody could blame Job for doing evil because he lived a godly life. We know upright means that he walked straight, a straight path, that he walked a level path, that he lived for God. And the thirdly, this other towering statement, God says, he fears, he fears me, he fears God and turns away from evil. I love when he says that because the one that's standing in front of him and, and that God is interacting with is pure evil, Satan. He, he fears me and he turns away from the likes of you. That's amazing what God says about Job here. Can, can, I mean, God is literally boasting about Job here to Satan. Could he make this boast about us? Huh? Would he even consider putting us before Satan as an opportunity? For him to bring glory to himself, even though it comes through some pain for us? Would he even use us? Are our lives lived in such a way that, that we would be worthy of such a blessed position to be chosen by God in this scenario? Could God say this of us? There's just nobody like Randy Jr. on earth. Randy Jr.'s like, oh man, there's nobody like John Hendon. There's nobody like Bruce. He wears his mask under his nose. It's the only way you can breathe with these dumb things. There's, there's nobody like Brandon. He's, he's a blameless and an upright man, Satan. You ought to set your sights on him because I tell you what, there's nobody like him. You know, you consider Jen Doyle. She fears me and she turns away from the likes of you. Evil. Can you say this of us? I tell you, lately, he would not be able to say this about me because of how I've allowed myself to get wrapped up in all the political bull. You get yourself wrapped up in that, you'll find yourself in sin real quick. Start getting angry, getting mean, getting mad. God were to present me, he said, you could have used Phil two weeks ago. Right now, I'm working on him. God boasts about His servant, His covenant partner, Job. It's, it's amazing what you're reading here. God is speaking about a sinful man on earth. And look what He's saying about this man, His servant, blameless, upright. This is spectacular what we're reading. Now let's look at Satan's response in verses 9 and 10. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear you? Does Job fear God for no reason, though? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Oh, he's a tricky devil. You know, Satan responds with a question of his own, and it reveals that he knows who Job is, and he knows really well. It is his job. It is within his job description, if you want to call it that, 
to take notice of people like Job, those who are blameless and upright. It could be that you are a blameless and upright man or woman who loves Jesus Christ. You live your life for Him, and the reason why Satan hasn't been messing with you because he's hedged you in. He's not allowing it at this point. He hadn't allowed it up to this point with Job. It's Satan's job to notice people like Job. Satan says things about Job, but yeah, but that guy, he fears you for no reason because of all these great things you've done for him. He knows exactly who Job is. He admits that Job looks like one who fears God. He must admit this. But he asks, why does he fear you, God? Is it because God is God? Is it because God is worthy of Job's worship and loving obedience? Or is there another reason? It was as if Satan had said, Does your finest servant, your boasted showpiece, serve you for conscience or convenience? Do you see how clever and deceptive Satan is in his words? Well, there's no doubt he fears you, but... Why is that? I think it's because you've hooked him up and you're protecting him right now. That's what Satan said. That's why I told you earlier, it's not Job that's under the test here. It's God that's being tested by Satan. It's amazing to me that God allows it. But God allows it because He knows at the end of the day it's going to glorify Him. It makes Satan look like a buffoon. Verse 10, Satan suggests that it is merely convenience. God had put a hedge around uh, Job, a hedge of protection, his estate and his, his estate and business, which kept Satan at bay. That's what this hedge of protection does. It kept Satan out of his business and out of his life and away from his children. Satan points this out and suggests that this is the reason for Job's piety. He also attributes Job's piety to the fact that God has blessed the work of Job's hand and increased his possessions. Now, there have always been people who worship God for His gifts rather than for who He is. This has been going on since the fall. Satan knows this, and he also instigates and perpetuates this false worship. Now, he, I don't have any doubt that as he was going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it, he discovered plenty of God-claiming, self-worshipping fakes. Well, what would Satan find today if he were to go to and fro and walk up and down on it? What would happen if he did that just in Modesto and he ended up over churches that promote all the prosperity gospel? What would he think? Well, look, they're just doing what they always do. They worship themselves. They're not worshiping you because of who you are. They worship you because of what you give them. That's... Satan's argument here, and sadly, it's legit. It's too legit to quit, right, MC Hammer? People in the New Testament followed Jesus because of the benefits He gave them, not because they wanted to be His disciples. John chapter 2, verses 23 and 25. And today there are those who attach themselves to the church for the advantages that come their way. Satan is suggesting that Job has discovered the prosperity gospel, and guess what? It works. If he honors God, God will make him richer and richer. He and his wife will have the most satisfying love life ever. His wife will have children. His children will be healthy and successful. His bank account will grow and grow. He will have God's favor all the time. His whole family will enjoy fabulous holidays and a lifestyle to make a pagan billionaire envious. Who wouldn't be pious if those are the things that you get out of it? That is what Satan suggests is motivating Job. Oh, he just believes in the prosperity gospel like everyone else. That's why he's worshiping you. That's why he's pious. You've hooked him up fat. He don't care about you. He doesn't care about the giver. He cares about the gifts. Satan could make that claim today of many in our own community, and he would be right, wouldn't he? 
Would he be right about us if he made that claim about you? I hope not. Job is not pious because he actually loves God, honors God, or believes God is worthy of his worship. He is pious because piety results in prosperity. That is Satan's argument. Uh, Steve Lawson wrote, in this cunning response, Satan accused God of buying Job's worship. Job, Satan insisted, worshipped God for what prosperity he could gain from him, not for who God is. That's his entire argument. In the next line, Satan asked God to perform a test to prove his theory about Job's alleged piety. Move to verse 11. Satan says, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Guaranteed. The phrase, stretch out your hand, is the Bible's way of speaking of God in action. When God stretches out his hand, he acts in human history. Touch all that he has means to smite, to strike down, to hit aggressively. Satan says, if you act against Job and strike down all that he has, he will surely curse you to your face. Job's piety would then be exposed as merely convenient. Satan's theory would be vindicated and God's word would be fallible. Now, Satan's method is is totally and utterly imprudent, but his logic is sound. Think about it. If a person says they love God for who He is and not because of what He gives them, how can we know for sure if they are being truthful? Test them by taking away their possessions. Take away all the stuff they say really doesn't play in on their relationship with God. That's how you know. That's how you find out. If they still love and worship God after losing everything, their testimony is obviously true. If they curse God to His face or abandon Him or any of that, we now know their testimony is false. They were just in it for the gifts, not the giver. You see how Satan's logic is pretty sound? Now, Satan doesn't, again, forgets who he's dealing with, one who knows everything, but his logic is sound. That's really the test in a way. The removal of one's possessions will reveal who they truly are and what they truly believe. When Jesus refused to create a second round of fish tacos for a multitude of disciples, a great many of them parted ways with the Lord and went back to their regular lives. John 6, 24 through 66. Oh, you don't want to feed us again? You fed us yesterday. Why won't you feed us today? I'm not feeding you. You need the bread of life. You don't need more fish tacos. You need me. Okay, well, we're really hungry and we're really, I know we were disciples and we followed you, but we're really not interested in following anymore. Goodbye. They just wanted the food. They didn't want Jesus. They just wanted the fish tacos. They just wanted his blessings, not the blesser. And they bounced. And Satan thinks something like this will happen if Job's stuff is removed. And as I said, what Satan didn't realize here is that uh, he's dealing with the omniscient, all-knowing God, right? Who, it's God who makes these claims about Job. It's not Job himself. Anytime a man makes these claims about himself, you can, you know, you can be a little skeptical because you're dealing with a man. But when God makes these claims about someone, you better believe him because his word is always true. And Satan doesn't realize that here. He's talking to God who knows all things. When God says something about Job, it is 100% accurate. And Satan's like, eh. That's Satan's problem. God knows what is in Job's heart. For he sees not as a man sees, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. God knows what he created in Job. A new heart made of flesh, not stone. And a new spirit, Ezekiel 36, 26. God knows exactly how Job will react if and when his possessions are removed. (laughs) Satan's 
plan here reveals his lack of knowledge, his lack of understanding, his lack of wisdom, his utter foolishness, his irreverence, his hatred against God, his hatred against God's people. I mean, he's already making a fool of himself because he's questioning the Word of God. He wants Job destroyed because Job's piety is offensive. He wants Job destroyed because Job doesn't fit in with the rest of the world. Job is actually living as an alien and stranger. Satan don't like that. He doesn't like foreigners in his area. He's not into the right kind of immigration. He don't like God's people. He hates us. He doesn't want us in this world. Satan detests a brightly shining city on a hill, Matthew 5.14. He hates it. He hates the light. Now, his motives are 100% aggressive and malicious here, but his logic is sound and his argument is correct. It may be difficult for us to comprehend, but Satan is actually doing something necessary to the glory of God here. His test will end up proving to all creation that God is worthy of the worship of a man and that God's worth is in no way dependent on God's gifts. That's what will be proven to all creation through this test. How did God respond to Satan's idea? Sounds like a great plan. Look down in verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. That'll come later. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. God's response was like Rocky's response to Clubber Lang and Rocky too. When Clubber declared, I'm going to bust you up. Rocky said, go for it. Remember that famous line? Go for it. This is what God says to Satan. I'm going to take all this stuff away and he's going to curse you to your face. Watch, I'll prove it to you. Go for it. With much greater intelligence and eloquence because Rocky's like, go for it. I mean, he can barely speak. He's been hit in the head too many times. God's never been hit in the head. But God tells Satan, you can have everything. All his possessions, they're, they're in your hands. But you cannot smite his person. You cannot harm him physically. God restricts Satan on that. And this, again, is an example of the sovereignty of God. Satan is only permitted to go so far. How's that tickle your fancy? That's pretty incredible, isn't it? You can, you can jack up his possessions. You can take all that he has, but you can't touch him. Not right now. And if you read ahead, you see that Satan doesn't touch him at all in the next section. Not till later, until he's permitted to. Sovereignty over Satan. Now, God must have, at this same point here, at this same time here, He must have simultaneously lifted His invisible hedge of protection around Job's possessions and family so that Satan could gain access to them. That's another example of God's sovereignty. When Satan said, you put a hedge around him, you blessed all the that's all true. Satan knew who Job was but couldn't gain access because God did not permit him to. What does that tell us? Sovereignty. And God says, now everything is in your hand. Everything that he has is in your hand. He's lifting that hedge of protection that we cannot see. Sometimes I wonder, especially at night, I wonder at night, you know, man, if I, if I had the eyes to see the angels that are around my house right now, and if God gave me that, that uh, ability to them and I didn't see any there, I'd be like, what are you doing? There is an example in Scripture where the veil, the, the, the limitation of, of human sight is lifted from an under-prophet, and he's able to see God's angelic warriors surrounding them and surrounding the enemy. God does hedge His people in. We know this. The Scripture says it here, but sometimes he drops that hedge so that Satan can do something to us. 
And there's a purpose behind that. And it may be painful, but the result will bring God glory and us good. After being given authority to attack Job, Satan leaves the presence of the Lord. He disembarks for earth. Poor Job. <laughs> he had no idea what was coming his way. <laughs> he was just clueless. He's probably just directing his people, you know, his, his workers to plow his fields, and he's just living his life. And this is coming down, you know, it's like, oh. He just didn't know it was coming, but I'll tell you what, he was the right man for the job. He was truly blameless and upright, and his piety and devotion to God was based on a genuine love for God, not a love of self. And as we will see at the end of the text next week, that he did not do at all what Satan said he would, which confounded Satan, infuriated him, and moved God to round two to further humiliate Satan and vindicate his word. Closing. It's tough for us to comprehend and understand because of the dualism we've been exposed to, but this is a reality. Satan has a role in God's governance. He even has a ministry. You're thinking, what? It is the ministry of opposition, the ministry of insisting that the genuineness of the believer be tested and proved genuine. It is a hostile and malicious ministry, but a necessary ministry for the glory of God. I love what Christopher Ash, he's a commentator that I, I've got his commentary on this book of Job. He says, the glory of God is more important than our comfort. This is true. If God chooses to remove our comfort. We must remember that it is for His glory, and our response will either glorify Him or not. We, in those moments, are being tested. God is praised, His glory is adored, and His honor is seen throughout creation when Christian men and women continue to worship Him when their comfort and blessings have been taken away. Has our comfort been removed? Have our blessings been taken away? And when I say blessings, I'm thinking of temporal things like our health or other things. You must understand that if this has happened to us, if we are in Christ, it is for the glory of God and our own good. Romans 8.28. That's a tough pill to swallow, but that is a rock-solid, impenetrable, it cannot be shaken or destroyed truth. It may be hard to believe, sister, brother, right? But it's true! Now, if we are not in Christ, the comfort and blessings and these things that we experience that are taken away, it is still for the glory of God. And it could very well be for our good because God could be working through those losses to draw us to Christ, who is the only one who can save us. God has a way of of working with sinners in, in His infinite wisdom, sometimes to just strip away all the little idols, things that we cling to, so that we begin to see Him for the first time. You sense that, that this is what God is, is doing, that He's working through your difficult circumstances and these things to draw you to Christ, then you must humble yourself and submit to Him. That's what you're to do. I know what you've been doing. You've been blaming God for all your troubles. You've been cursing God in your heart. You've been shaking your fist at the sky. You've been denying the, ex the existence of God. Well, these things wouldn't happen to me if there was a God who loves. They happen to you because there is a God who loves. Sometimes that's what it takes to get your attention.
you've lost a loved one, and the question is, how could you let this happen, God? And, and since you do not know God, God is saying back to you, how could I not? This is the only way I can get your attention. He loves us enough to take away the very things that we cling to with all our might that will destroy us. He will take them away. If that's you, repent. 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 Believe in Jesus. He didn't take away these things to kill you. He took them away to save you. Because those things have been removed, you can now hear the gospel clearly. You can now see the glory of God in a way that you never were before. And now you sense, maybe for the first time, or maybe for the first time in a long time, a genuine, heartfelt need for Christ. And so what do you do? You come to Him. You trust in the Lamb who was slain. You Trust in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, especially yours. And you believe on Him.